This is On Point, a podcast about bringing humanity to leadership communications. I'm your host, Andrea Lekashoff, President of Broadreach Communications. World-renowned conductor Benjamin Zander has two infectious passions, classical music and helping people realize their untapped love for new possibilities and new perceptions of themselves and their leadership. He sees his job as awakening possibility in others, using the metaphor of an orchestra as a group of highly trained individuals who are poised to unite into an effective whole. There is so much more I can say about Ben Zander. He is the founder and musical director of the Boston Philharmonic Orchestra and has appeared as a guest conductor with orchestras around the world. His performances have inspired thousands of musicians and executives to renew their sense of idealism and shed fresh, insightful, and sometimes provocative light on the interpretation of leadership. Ben has spoken about leadership around the globe, including several keynote speeches to world leaders at the Davos World Economic Forum. His best-selling book, The Art of Possibility, was co-authored with leading psychotherapist Rosamund Zander. And in his well-known TED Talk, The Transformative Power of Classical Music, Ben helps leaders overcome barriers to corporate productivity. And finally, Ben has won numerous awards, including the United Nations Caring Citizen of the Humanities Award and an ABSA Lifetime Achievement Award in Johannesburg in recognition of his contributions to the spheres of music, culture, and leadership. This was the first time that this award had been given to a non-South African, with previous recipients including Nelson Mandela and Bishop Desmond Tutu. Ben, welcome to On Point. Thank you, and Happy New Year. What a wonderful way of beginning the year. Impossibility. I couldn't agree more, Ben, and I am so thrilled to kick off the first episode of 2022 with someone who I respect so deeply and who has enabled so much change in the world. Ben, you'll remember that we first met over 20 years ago when I was an MBA student at the Ivy Business School You were so gracious, so gracious to accept our invitation to travel to London, Ontario, of all places, and perform to the Global Ivy community in a program that I co-founded in my second year at Ivy called Leader Lab. Um, So I was really thrilled when you accepted an invitation to do this podcast, because I know our audience of Canadian business leaders will truly benefit from your transformational perspectives on leadership communications. Wonderful. I can't wait. All right, Ben, let's start with a question about being a conductor. Uh, An orchestra conductor is often seen as a strong model for leadership. What are your thoughts on this perspective? The conductor has traditionally been the most dominating figure in the world of music. Uh, He has an enormous amount of power and charisma and visibility and fame and often fortune and he's looked up to and he's called maestro yes and that idea of the leader as the dominating figure top-down hierarchical right thinking and male that figure has come down to us from the romantic era actually as (laughs) the ideal image of a leader what we have discovered in this more recent time and what we have been exploring in our work in the art of possibility is that actually leadership is not about domination it's about relationship and that shift from the top-down leadership model to the empowering model Mm. is beautifully caught in the idea that the conductor actually doesn't make a sound. Mm-hmm. He's the only musician who doesn't make a sound. But he, and he has great power. But his power derives from his ability to make other people powerful. And that is the fundamental shift that we are facing now. That the leaders, the, the top leaders have a role to empower, to enliven, to, uh, to give other people power, 
to awaken possibility in other people. And that's a completely different job than dominating and giving instructions and telling people what to do and modeling powerful behavior and so on. So the Napoleonic model has given way to a totally different model and the conductor as empowerer, the conductor as the giver of power to other players. It doesn't work until the players are fully expressed, free, having a wonderful time, giving what they are capable of giving, and above all, having shining eyes. So that's the model. It's essentially a shift of hierarchy and diminishing hierarchy. But now comes a very interesting thing, because if the if the CEO, or as I say, the conductor, who's given away his power, does that mean he is powerless? Does that mean he becomes irrelevant? Good question. Right. And there the challenge for the leader and for the conductor is to maintain a position of integrity, of strength, of warmth, of generosity of spirit, and to keep a, a voice which is always looked up to. We cannot afford to reduce our standards or our values because that is the way we gain our authority. So we have to be mindful of what we say, we have to be mindful of our body language and the spirit which we bring into the room. And this happens before the music starts. So before the first downbeat, just the conductor walking into the room, the way he walks, or she, and I think it's very important to remember that we're on the brink of an era in which female conductors are going to play a role. Already, female leaders in the corporate world are a, a, a given. I mean that, yes. and I can always tell if I'm going to speak to a corporation, mm -hmm. if it's led by a woman. There's always a dimension added, which is of compassion and of awareness and of caring mm. and of sympathy that is often Beautiful. missing. And I remember a wonderful Beautiful. conversation that I was involved in. I think it was at Merrill Lynch, if I'm not mm -hmm. mistaken. There was a group of vice presidents, I think, who were sitting around and they were discussing about how they could be the best in the world. And this mm. woman said, why can't we discuss how we can be the best for the world? And suddenly the whole thing shifted. What a shift. It's a beautiful example of the shift into possibility from the downward spiral world which we spend most of our life in, which mm. is the world of competition and winning and losing and success and failure and measurement and comparison. That's the world of the downward spiral. It's exciting and it's uh, enlivening in a certain way, but there's always the back of the hand. There's the front of the hand which is winning and there's the back of the hand which is losing. There's right. the front of the hand which is success and the back of the hand which is failure. And so those two are binary. They always go together. In the world in which that woman was talking about, which is the shift to possibility, the world of what we call radiating possibility, how can we be the best for the world? Suddenly the back of the hand disappears. There is no back of the hand. There is only the radiating shapes, or arrows as it were, going out into the world to see this opportunity, this possibility, this conversation, this uh, transformation. And so it's a shift of being, not just of thinking, it's a shift of being which affects our, our physical being as well. Mm -hmm. The breathing, the open-heartedness, the warmth, all of those things are, are released by that shift. And the world of the art of possibility, the book, The Art of Possibility, is about uh, learning the mastery of that shift from the downward spiral to irradiating possibility. And leadership is taking people with you. How do you shift an entire corporation? Because when you talk about open-heartedness, 
and the other characteristics that you mentioned, that is that is difficult for one person to shift into. How do you take that to an entire organization? Well, then that question is, let's put that question in, in the form of a possibility statement. Sure. The music only bursts out of us when we do yes. it together. Right? So it, now the 10,000-person corporation is very different from an orchestra of 120, which mm -hmm. is what I have. But the 10,000-person uh, uh, corporation consists of many orchestras because mm -hmm. each unit, each managerial group is itself an orchestra. Beautiful, that's a great In fact, analogy. everybody has an orchestra. Even a child, an eight-year-old child with a dog has a leadership position, <laughs> right? True. Because the True. dog will either feel the support, the love, the encouragement, the training, the discipline, which comes from his leader, or mm. he'll feel chaos and anger and, and snapping mm. and, you know, all those things. So, so every time we open our mouths as human beings, every time we open our mouths, we have a choice mm. either to speak in that downward spiral, which is automatic. It's not as if we have to practice uh, mm. comparisons and measurement and winning and losing. It's built into our DNA. And the world of possibility, that woman who said, how can we talk about how, how we can be the best for the world? That was not an automatic thing. That was came out of her thinking, out of the discipline of her mind. And that's the, the discipline of, of possibility is probably the most rigorous discipline we have. And the, the mistakes we make as parents, for instance, or as teachers, Yes. Uh, a student of mine once said that he'd been told by a teacher that he would never amount to anything. Oh. And it took me quite a long time as a teacher to recover him from that experience. Of course. Right. So language is the form in which we deliver our leadership most of the time. Hmm. And language can be delivered through it in an entire organization. It's not easy if there are 10,000 people, but you have to choose your managers and vice presidents very carefully. True. Just as I choose very carefully who's mm. the leader of the violin section or who's the leader of the, the, so the violas or who's the first horn, because I know that if I get a great first horn mm. uh, with all the qualities that I value in a musician, he is going to make sure, and when I use the word he, it could equally well be she, she that sure. should be understood. Uh, he's going to make sure that his entire section, not only the horns, but also the trumpets and the trombones and the tuba, mm. all that, will, that, that will uh, diffuse through the whole section, and, mm. and that if there are problems, he will take care of it. I don't yeah. have to deal with every single unit. So that... Uh, is a microcosm of what you're asking about. How do you do it in a big corporation? That's fascinating. And I think the words we use, even in the in the words that we use, for instance, for the vision, every organization has to have a vision. Every mm -hmm. effective organization has to have a vision. And visions are very poorly stated most of the time. They They're are. much too long. They de they're not really a vision. A vision is a statement of possibility. So before a vision are the words, the possibility of. And now you say the vision, for instance, of the Boston Philharmonic, yes. uh, our orchestra, our vision is passionate music making without boundaries. Now, it's mm. short. Everybody knows it. There's no doubt. And it will tell us what to do. So, for instance, when we talk about the ticket prices having to go up, yes, but the cheapest ticket prices have been the same for 30 years because of our vision. <coughs> Passionate music making with our boundaries. And if somebody gives a ticket back to us, instead of selling it again, because they can't use it at the weekend, you know, they have something else, instead of selling it again, we give it to Rosie's Place, which is a homeless shelter. 
Because ah. we know that the homeless shelter has many people in it who love classical music. Why shouldn't they experience it too? That's so that, that c comes naturally out of our vision. Now, if people are very careful and very mindful as they set up the vision for the company, mm. then it will spread through the entire company, even if there are 10,000 people. Amazing. Ben, here's a, here's a question for you about possibility, because we all, I love uh, and am very committed to growing as a person, changing as a person, evolving as a person, and, and almost reimagining myself uh, every year. And I, I do know that there are some people who resist change, because change can be uh, so many different things to people. It can be uh, scary. It can be um, intimidating. How do you bring people along this, this, this journey of possibility when they may not be as open to change as, as the next person? Right. It's a great question. It's the same question as how do you teach? <laughs> great. And the answer is enthusiasm. So if, if the leader has expresses enthusiasm and i mean enthusiasm in the profound sense you know the middle syllable of enthusiasm is the word theo which means god and so being full of god meaning full of possibility because I, you don't have to believe in god in order to be enthusiastic uh, but you do have to believe in possibility you have to generate an, a sense of excitement a sense of uh, discovery a sense of uh, Wow, this is going to be, and the shining eyes is the, is the way we express it. Yes. So the, the physical manifestation of the leader is absolutely crucial. And, it, and we can't let down our guard for a moment. I remember I gave a talk, and I think it was in Las Vegas or somewhere like that, and afterwards I had 1,500 people in the hall, and, and then I went to the airport. And when I went to the airport... I went to the to the desk to get my ticket, mm -hmm. and the woman said, "Oh, Mr. Zander, I'm so sorry. We we gave away your ticket because it was overbooked. But there's another flight in three hours." And I I was exhausted. I was livid. I said, "How can you do that? It's a first class <laughs> ticket. You can't." And I stamped with my fist on the desk as if I was a percussion player, and I was not happy. And then. Uh, I turned around and the gentleman behind me said, hmm, I'm sorry I saw that because I really enjoyed your talk. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so, my goodness. So, uh, like priests, we have to behave impeccably. We leaders. We cannot let our, our, our guard down. And we do. We all do. We all fail. We all fall into the the trap of uh, anger or disappointment or frustration mm. or whatever. And the great leaders, the ones we all look up to, like Mandela, for instance, mm. you know, who kept his patience and his loving nature, even though he was in prison for 27 years, that's a model. And if we can look to people we admire who have patience and love, I keep coming back to this word, because love is really at the source of it all. You have to love what you're doing. I love mm. the music that I'm playing, mm. and it's my love of it and my desire to bring it to life that gives me infinite patience, both with myself to solve mm. the problems of the interpretation which Beethoven or Bruckner has set us, but also infinite patience with the people who are playing it, because mm. they are also giving their heart and soul to to do it. So if you create an atmosphere of engagement and of exploration and of mm -hmm. uh, discovery and you express that enthusiasm and excitement yourself, other people will join that. And it's true that younger people are more prone to that, more, more engaged maybe in that because they're young and older people have given up. But you know, I always say about about a cynical person because a cynical we're talking about cynicism essentially when I go to an orchestra and I have a hundred faces in front of me 
um, some of them look a little displeased. Who is this guy? And I'd rather be home and tending my garden or playing golf or whatever they like to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and that cynical look, I know that look very well. And But what I say to myself is that a cynical person is a passionate person who doesn't want to be disappointed again. Huh. And then what I have is a hundred passionate people. And so then I can engage with them on on the level of their passion. Because they went into music because they fell in love with it when they were kids and they mm. and then they got disappointed and and I'm sure those people in your audience who've played in yes. orchestras know that feeling of disappointment if if the conductor is rude or badly behaved or gets the tempo wrong because you know musicians have strong opinions about how the music should go themselves and they they get upset if if the conductor is careless or disrespectful of the music or makes mistakes or whatever so they, they this is cynicism is a protection against disappointment and if you get round the back and speak to their passion, you'll find it's there. And it's always there. I've never failed wow. to discover that passion. I have a wonderful story, which if I may just tell, it was very yes, funny. Please. I, was, I was talking to 500 school administrators in England, mm. in, in, in Newcastle, I think it was. And uh, I was doing, I do a two-hour presentation, has a lot of music in it and singing and there's a tremendous level of enthusiasm generated, or lots of okay. stories and 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 uh, jokes and 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 singing. It's, it's it's fantastic. Well, you've experienced it yourself, so you know. Um, and it never fails. And so everybody was getting more and more enthusiastic and and, mm-hmm. and more energetic and so on, except for one person, and he didn't respond. Nothing. He didn't laugh, he didn't sing, he didn't stand when I had them all singing happy birthday and, they, and, 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 and he didn't, nothing. No, and, and it would be very funny things, everybody would be laughing, nothing, no response. And my, where did my eyes go? Always back to that one. And because yep, of course, beings, of course. We're so, we're so pathetic. <laughs> there were 499 people just bursting with enthusiasm, excitement, but one who wasn't responding. Wow. And so my eyes went there. At the end of the thing, I called up Roz, my partner, who used to be my wife, but now she's just my lifelong partner in possibility. And I yes. called her up in, in Boston. And she said, how did it go? And I said, it was great. And what did I say next? But... But, uh, of course I you did. Isn't that fascinating? So I, I said, there was one person who didn't respond. She just didn't respond. And Ros said, I don't believe it. I said, Ros, what do you mean you don't believe it? I promise you, he did not respond. He didn't laugh. He didn't sing. She said, I don't believe it. I said, Ros, you weren't there. How do you know? She said, I just know. And that evening, there was a party, of, you know, of the, of the company that I just visited. And he was there. And so no. I, went, I went up to him. <laughs> I went up to him and I said, I'm having an argument with my wife about you because I say you didn't respond this afternoon in the talk. And she said she didn't believe it. And he said, I'm so sorry. I was having a diabetic attack. <laughs> and I thought wow. that if I... If I said anything or moved, I would faint. I loved the talk. He said it was fantastic. And oh, <laughs> so she was right. The, she was right. If you, the thing about possibility is that everybody wants it. There isn't anybody who isn't open that. to possibility. So the secret for the leader, and by this I mean whether it's a conductor or a CEO, is mm-hmm. to find the mechanisms, to find the strategies, to find the way of being that mm-hmm. unlocks possibility. And that's what we're talking about here. I mean, the book, The Art of Possibility, is a book of practices, and of course, like like the religions, although this has nothing to do with religion, it's not based on religion at all, mm-hmm. but it has in common with religion that you have to practice. And you have to practice the violin, too. It doesn't happen by itself. Mm. So by mastering the practices, 
And let me give you a couple of practices so your listeners know what they are. One of the, my favorite is the practice of giving an A. Now, that came out of my experience as a teacher at the New England Conservatory, where I taught okay. for 45 years. And right. I had a class in interpretation on Friday afternoons, okay. a famous class. There were 50 people in that class. It was huge. It was bigger than the chorus. It was because everybody wow. wants to learn about about interpretation, right? That's their business. Sure. So what I noticed was that the players, because they're at a very treacherous time in their careers, they're in their early 20s, mm. they are worried about their grades, they're sure. worried about their careers, about the reviews, about the comparisons, all that stuff in the downward mm -hmm. spiral that we've been talking about. And the voice in the head is telling them they're not good enough and that other people are better. Of course. They haven't mm -hmm. practiced enough and they won't make it and all that's going on. Mm -hmm. That noise, which has manifests itself both in their thinking and also in their body language, prevents the music from coming out purely because they're physically tense and uh, restricted. I and I, I noticed that and I came home uh, came back to and I said to Roz, "What what can we do? This is this is they're so anxious about their grades and about mm. the comparisons." And she said very cleverly, "She said, well, give them an A before they start in the first <sighs> class." And that was a brilliant idea, but it wasn't enough because oh. the voice of comparison is so loud mm, that they would say, "Well, well." Yes, he's giving us a grade, but what is my grade really? So what we did instead, we gave them an A, or I gave them an A in the first two weeks. Okay. They had to write me a letter in those first two weeks, which was dated May of the following year. So when they finished, yes. and the letter had to begin with the words, Dear Mr. Zander, I got my A because. And then they would write a letter describing who they would have become by the following May to justify this extraordinary grade. Wow. And I would tell them to fall passionately in love with the person they were describing in that letter. They did. They would write about who they would be, who they could be, who they see themselves as, if only that damn voice would stop them uh, wow. thinking. And, of course, when I came into the room, the person I te taught was the person they described in that letter. The beauty for me was that I only take A students, and so I'm surrounded by stars. And the beauty for them is that they're living in an environment of respect and being listened to and accepted as the best that they are, and it creates a wonderful environment. Now, the giving of the A is, of, if you like, the cornerstone of the art of possibility, because you can do it to anybody. You can give an A to anybody. And, and immediately the relationship is transformed. Imagine if the Arabs were to give the Israelis some, an A and the Israelis would give the Arabs an A. At the moment, they're giving each other an F. They're not doing very well. Wow. And, but if we would give each other A, the, mm -hmm. the grade A, and speak to the best part of that person, that, of course, has disappeared completely from the political environment here in America it's to, to an extent that is extremely dangerous because it's like war. And it instead is. of being a constructive conversation between people who respect each other, which is the design of the American experiment, um, it's become a free-for-all hate campaign. And it's, it's an awful thing to live in it. And, and what I create as best I can wherever I go and, and, uh, and, and certainly in the orchestras and in the classes is an environment of the A. That is amazing. And that, that reminds me uh, to a certain degree. Are you familiar with Mark Allen and his ideal scene where you, you paint a really vivid future, uh, picture of your future and you live into it because you've defined what it looks like you've defined who you want to become and by virtue of of creating that vision little by little you 
manifest it to a certain degree, which sounds a lot like the art of possibility. It is a little bit. The only thing that I hear in your description <clears throat> is the disappointment of failure, and that oh. is not part of the art of possibility. In other words, if you have a particular vision... Or, or it's more like a particular idea of what you want. Like, uh, I want to be a... <laughs> uh, I remember a young woman said to me, I want to be a member of the Boston Symphony. That's my dream. And okay. that's a dangerous dream to have because there are not many people in the Boston Symphony <laughs> and everybody's competing. So having a specific goal may be enlivening, but that's not what we're talking about. Possibility, as you put it yourself, is a possibility to live into. And the beauty of that model of the possibility doesn't go up and down uh, the way that arrows go up and arrows go down on the stock market. It's rather an open shape with uh, arrows going out in all directions like a sun. And we actually don't know where those arrows are going. And it's the not knowing and the being comfortable with not knowing that is the state of mind of possibility. And that's very different from having a goal. And it's not bad to have a goal, but if you don't make the goal, if you make the goal, great, and if you don't, you say, how fascinating. <laughs> so, and that's, that's another practice, which I teach to my, all my students that are in orchestra members. If they make a mistake, instead of getting upset and shriveling into a ball of despair and self-disapprobation. Uh, Instead, they raise their hands in the air and say, how fascinating. And that, the energy of going up rather than mm. down, because when you pull down, you're more likely to make a mistake again. It also opens up the question, how fascinating. What did I do? What can I do better? Curiosity. To, yeah, curiosity. curiosity. Exactly. Mistakes engender curiosity always and I mean in possibility that's true so the danger of the specific goal and I'm not sure exactly how the person you're describing creates this uh, image but that that's the only th aspect of it that but I would have to read it in order to see Understood. if it's true a true possibility see I feel possibility is a little bit works a little bit like electricity there is electricity in the world, and we, we all know that. We don't know exactly where it is, but it's, it's around. And in the house, there's a plug in the wall, and yes. a, a socket, I mean, not a plug, a socket. And if you take a plug and put it in the socket, the light goes on. Yes. And we're not surprised. It happens every time. <laughs> but if you, put it, if you put the same plug into a... A pillow or into a divan or into a coat or something. it wouldn't work yeah. right you, right you shouldn't be surprised so you have to find the right socket and the socket is the electric socket which produces electricity i would say exactly the same about possibility the socket is possibility and the plug is us so if you it's our language it's our relationships our activities yeah. if we know to plug into possibility, if we develop the mastery of being in, in this way, the light will go on and miracles will happen around. Mysteriously, <laughs> on all fronts, miracles occur. And that's, that's the beauty of it. And, of course, the way we know that it's happening is that the eyes are shining because the eyes are the outward manifestation of our soul. So we all, you can't lie with your eyes. And so we always know, and I always say about the players, if the eyes are shining, we know we're doing it. If the eyes are not shining, we ask the question, who am I being that my player's eyes are not shining? Ben, it's so funny that you said that. I have, and I'm looking at it right now on my desk, a little post-it uh, that says, and I don't know where I saw it, but it spoke to me. It spoke to me very, very strongly who am i being if my kids eyes are not shining well that comes to actually if i may say so for me because, <laughs> because that's exactly what i say everywhere i go if if our players eyes are not shining or our or our kids eyes are not shining or our husband or wife or lover or friend or whoever it is if the eyes are not shining 
the tendency is to dismiss them, to blame them, find fault yes. in them, or fire them. <laughs> and sure. by asking the question, who am I being, we, are, mm. we have an opportunity to transform the only thing we can transform, which is ourselves. Ourselves. Yeah. So that's Agreed. beautiful. I'd love to know uh, where that came from. And of course, I, I 100% embrace it. Because I, I probably it. said it. <laughs> <laughs> you probably said it. It's, it's yeah. true. It was a revelation to me. I mean, you see, the thing is, I didn't grow up this way. I was a regular conductor. I was doing my dominating thing, and I was very powerful, and I, was, I thought conducting was forcing people to obey my will. That's, mm. what, that's what I thought leadership was. And mm. I knew what I wanted in the music, and my job was to make them damn well do it. <laughs> no, I did it in a friendly way, but still, sure. if they didn't do it, I would, I would very quickly blame them. Now realizing that since they're the ones who are playing it anyway, I'm not mm. going to play their instruments. You know, I, uh, talking about the horns we talked about earlier, because I know Ryan sitting beside yes. you is a horn player. Uh, yes. If a horn is the most treacherous instrument in the world, I mean, it's most like you're most likely to have a problem with a horn than with any other instrument. It's very treacherous and difficult, and even very good horn players make mistakes, and by which I mean they make a note which is not well produced. And I have this very radical idea that if somebody in an orchestra makes a mistake, the conductor can take responsibility for it. It's not directly the conductor's fault, obviously, because they didn't play the horn. But there's a sense in which, and I, I'm sure Ryan and those people who play instruments who are listening will know what I mean. If the conductor takes care of the horn player before they play, looks at them, nurtures them, has a gesture which is encouraging and, and mm. sympathetic, it's very unlikely they'll make that mistake. So when, when a mistake occurs in the orchestra, I very easily take responsibility for it and say, whatever it is, it's the conductor's fault. That's not a bad posture for, um, for a leader. For a leader, if of course. So, there's a chapter in the book, um, and it's, it's called Being the Board. It's entirely the invention of my wonderful partner, Rosamond, who's a mm -hmm. deep thinker about these issues and is herself a, a therapist. She's a family therapist as well as a brilliant painter and a wonderful writer and all these th things. But anyway, she invented this idea of being the board. In a normal game, chess, mm -hmm. say, you have black pieces and white pieces and they fight mm -hmm. each other, and the mm -hmm. one who wins has you know wiped out the opposition that's the normal form of a game in the game that she's describing uh, being the board you are the board on which the game is being played so oh, that's a great perspective it's beautiful it's a great mm -hmm. chapter i mean it sends shivers down the back of your spine it's so because the energy that is generated by by taking responsibility for the whole it's just it's mm -hmm. it's unbelievable i remember a, a situation in which this played out in many situations have but but it, i was conducting the mendelssohn italian symphony in a concert mm -hmm. and the italian symphony begins with the winds going and then the violins go and one of the violinists made a mistake, and instead of going ba 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 came in ba 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 came one bar early, and not apologetically. I mean, it was definitely with full confidence, so nobody could miss it. And it was so dramatic that I stopped. I'd never done that in a concert. I just stopped and started again. The personnel manager came to me in intermission and said, I know who did that, would you like to know? And I said, no, I did that. Mm. Now, I didn't play the violin, and I didn't mm -hmm. do anything in confusing in my conducting because nobody else made a mistake. But by stepping into that space of saying, mm. no, I did that, immediately ended the conversation, that was the end of it. 
because otherwise, let's say I'd said, yes, I do want to know, sure. and then I would have, you know, there would have been a blame, and then the union would have got involved and would have been fired, and there would have been an argument, mm -hmm. and then the family would have lost the game, you know. Right. <laughs> the downward spiral of, of these catastrophes, where it's just where the leader chooses, and it's a choice, Yes. it's an invention to say, no, I did that, it's kind of cleansing in a way. It was a relief for everybody, and and that was a beautiful practice. And that's that's one of the practices in the book, the art of possibility. That is true leadership. Well, Ben, I'd love to close out our podcast by introducing our listeners to Ryan Garbett, um, who you spoke with briefly uh, before the podcast. Ryan, uh, for those of you who don't know him, is a professional horn player. He's a teacher, he's a composer, he's an arranger, and he's a multi-instrumentalist. He's a graduate of McGill and the Glenn Gould School, and he's performed with some of Canada's premier ensembles, including the Toronto Symphony Orchestra, the Canadian Opera Company, and the Amici Chamber Ensemble. And Ryan also happens to be the producer of our podcast, and he wrote and performed the music for our intro. And given Ryan's love and passion for music, I wanted to give him the opportunity to ask Ben a few questions of his own. So Ryan, over to you. Thanks, Andrea. Appreciate that. And Ben, it's been an absolute joy to listen to you speak. And, and I just, I wish for myself that one day I could play under a conductor that has uh, <laughs> even similar uh, outlook on, on life and conducting as you. And uh, I would be honored um, for an experience like that. Well, one of my former members of the Boston Philharmonic wrote me a letter and said, I gather you're going to be interviewed by Ryan. He's a fabulous horn player. So I'm delighted to meet you, and let's make sure that there is an occasion in which we make music together. I would love that. I'm very flattered to hear that. Thank you. So, Ben, I know that you began your musical career as a cellist. I was wondering if you could tell us about your transition to becoming a conductor and whether that was something that had always been in the back of your mind or arose naturally or... Well, it, you know. came, it came as a result of a telling a lie, I have to tell you. It was very funny. Uh, you could say it was a natural development, but it happened in a very funny way, a little dramatic, which was that I was a very experienced cellist and chamber music coach because my teacher was a great Spanish uh, virtuoso master, Gaspar Casado. I went to study with him when I was 15 years old, spent five years with him in Florence and traveling with him around Europe, carrying his cello and learning music and having a really extraordinary experience with him. And then uh, when I came to America, um, I uh, went on teaching cello and chamber music, and then I applied for a job as the cello and chamber music coach for a wonderful summer school in Lenox, Massachusetts, where there are many summer schools, you know, around the Boston Symphony, and a lot of young kids go there for their summer holidays, and they focus on music. And there was a very good school there. And I applied to teach cello and chamber music. And the woman who ran the school, we had a lovely interview, and she seemed to be impressed with my credentials and offered me the job. And then we had tea. And then while we were having tea, she started talking about the school and said, incidentally, we're looking for a conductor for the orchestra. Do you know anybody who could do that? And I said, oh, I'd love to do that. She, she said, are you very experienced? I said, oh, very. <laughs> now, at that point, I hadn't actually conducted a single note. But uh, you will understand, I think, as a, as a horn player and as a musician, that actually conducting is no more than playing writ large. So when I play the cello or I coach a chamber music, a string quartet or something, I'm actually conducting. And uh, to do that on a larger piece of canvas seemed to me entirely natural. Now, those were the days before Google. She couldn't look up to see what my kids <laughs> had <laughs> And so she offered me the job. And so I became a conductor literally through that conversation. And it felt very natural, and I it was as good 
the very first time I conducted as I am now. No, not quite, because now what I've learned is you have to conduct differently to a, for a wind player than you do for a string player. You have to. There are all sorts of different techniques that get the best out of players, but essentially it's the same. And the the elements that were crucial were going back to it: enthusiasm, absolutely without question, is the number one. Uh, a great love for music. You really have to just adore the music. And if you do, and you have clear ideas about how you think it should sound and how, how to phrase it and shape it and the dynamics and the, all those elements, and then you share your enthusiasm and your knowledge and your love with the players, they will produce great music. Amazing. And incidentally, I'll add one more thing. Most of the conductors of the past were instrumentalists. They weren't conductors. I mean, Toscanini, uh, you know the story of Toscanini was sitting in the opera orchestra in, in uh, Buenos Aires, I think, in Argentina, playing Aida, and the uh, first conductor was sick, and the second conductor hadn't arrived, and one of the players said, Arturo, you do, you can now. I can't, what do you mean? I can't get, no, do it. And so there, nobody else would do it, so he stood up and conducted Aida from memory. <laughs> wow. nobody, he'd never gone into a conducting class in his life. Footwengler, Klemperer, none of these great, kind of Beecham, none of these conductors, none of these people ever went to a conducting class. That doesn't mean you can't teach a lot in a conducting class. But in the end, it's about something else. It's about... Well, it's about two things. It's about a deep understanding of music, which has got to be actually greater than that of the players in the orchestra, because the players in the orchestra look to the conductor for understanding, for a deeper vision, for a mastery of the piece that their individual players are not expected to produce. And the other thing is a way of being that encourages or enables the best of the players. So you can study the music and you can study what is in the way of your realizing the music. Those are the two things that, are, that I feel I can teach as a conducting teacher. So, for instance, I mean, so many of the great conductors, Sell and, and Barenboim and all these people, were pianists. They were great pianists and they treated the piano like an orchestra. And then when they stood up in front of the orchestra, they didn't have to learn to do that. They, that was built in. Is that, does that make sense to you? Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious. Uh, evidently, you had no issues, as you just mentioned, getting your first conducting job. Um, <laughs> By but, telling uh, a bald-faced lie, right? <laughs> yeah. I was wondering uh, if you could tell us a little bit about what you thought the biggest challenge that you faced on your journey to becoming a conductor, if there is one that comes to mind? Hmm. I don't know that I think that way. I think, um, I think in terms of the great works that I've had the privilege to study and conduct with great musicians. I mean, I just did something. We've been silent for a year and a half. I mean, 20, 21 months, nearly two years because of COVID. And when we came back, we, we performed in Symphony Hall in Boston, which is one of the greatest concert halls in the world. Some might actually say the greatest. Um, and I had to choose a piece. And the temptation is to do something very popular that everybody knows, Tchaikovsky Fifth or Beethoven Five or you know, something like that. And I chose something outrageous and completely unexpected, which was the Bruckner Eighth. <laughs> well, you know as a horn player, you probably know the Bruckner Eighth very well, but it's very rarely played. It's 86 minutes of the hardest music, hard for the musicians and the conductor, but hard for the audience. And it was that wise? Well, certainly the marketing department of the Boston Philharmonic didn't think it was, they didn't think it was a good idea at all. But I persevered and I said, you know, we don't want to hear familiar music. We want to be challenged and we want to have our hearts lifted after all this struggle. And nothing does that better than the 
than the Bruckner aid. turned out to be one of the wisest things we ever did and just this morning the one of the critics in the paper called that performance the performance of the year chose it of all the performances in wow. the entire life of musical life of boston which is amazing because we're very much the avis in boston because the boston symphony is one of the greatest orchestras in the world and uh, we're the other orchestra but and the reason they gave is a very interesting thing. The, the, this critic wrote, every concert they play, this is our orchestra, Boston Philharmonic, every concert they play is imbued with an excitement, drive, sense of discovery, and joy of sharing that is rare among orchestras, period. And I love that, because this could be true of any CEO that, that is listening. Uh, are you generating in your corporation excitement, drive, sense of discovery, and joy of sharing? If you are, you're probably doing a pretty good job of leadership. So that they picked out those things as being the qualities that we bring is, is a very satisfying and, you know, really gratifying thing absolutely that's amazing um i'm glad that you mentioned the pandemic as of course it's uh, on all of our minds at all times um i was wondering if you might speak to us about your experience during the pandemic and if you were able to continue working i know so many musicians were without work including myself for such a long period of time and and maybe just speak to us about some ways that you navigated these past couple of years and, and how it was for you Great. Well, thank you for the question. For the Boston Philharmonic, it was, just as your experience, a total dead end. There was no way the Boston Philharmonic could function. We couldn't play, um, and every musician in the orchestra was out of work. And there was nothing we could do about it. I did two things, uh, which made a, sm a small difference, but it was very important. We raised enough money so that those musicians who could not make it on their own uh, without the income from playing were paid anyway even though they didn't play. And we managed to do that for 49 members of the full complement of the orchestra. The others were either not, you know, didn't need it. But for those who needed it, so we raised something in the region of $400,000 in order to do that. The way we did that was to appeal to the people who love the orchestra and who admire the, the players to realize that clapping and giving them a standing ovation when they play is one side of the coin, but supporting them when they couldn't work is another and they saw both of them as equally important. And that was very moving. And I'll tell you, one of the results of that is there is a new level of camaraderie and deep gratitude 
in the players that was not there before. It couldn't be because they were just individual players playing. Now they're a group of people who was supported by the community not to play. And I think that made a deep impression. And one of the cellists told me it saved her life. I mean, she has a child, she has a mortgage, she had, you know, there was no way she could have survived. And so the, imagine how, and, and they come to rehearsal with even more enthusiasm than they did. So that was a lovely story. Um, the other thing I did was I started a series of concerts in my driveway and the neighborhood was extremely happy because they came on Sunday afternoons and the players, we had a few players, who know, four or five chamber music players every Sunday afternoon. But it was fantastic. And then we started live streaming it around the world. And once, at one time, there were 22 different countries listening to the chamber music in my driveway. Wow. That was great. <laughs> it was absolutely great. But let me tell you what happened with the youth orchestra, because that was really beautiful. I have two orchestras. The, the grown-up orchestra is obviously is a, not entirely professional. It's an interesting mixture of professionals and students from the conservatory and, and amateurs. So it's a unusual mixture, very good mixture, because the professionals, of course, set the level of the orchestra, which is very, very high. The students remind us all the time that it's actually a training orchestra, which means we turn the rehearsals into uh, opportunities to study. And the amateurs, as the word amateur, meaning lover, uh, remind us that music is an act of love. And those are three aspects of any, actually any enterprise, any company. It has to be high standards, training, and love. And those, those, uh, that combination is beautiful in the, in the Boston Philharmonic. Now, the youth orchestra is a very interesting case because you can't say to the youth orchestra, I'm sorry, we're going to disband for the year. <laughs> they're members. And all the attempts that we tried and looked at of playing, you know, over Zoom and so on, you can't play over Zoom. I mean, you can, you can pretend that you're playing, and there are all sorts of lovely and ingenious strategies, but I knew that was not going to work. But one thing you can do over Zoom is learn to conduct. And so I turned the Boston Philharmonic Youth Orchestra into a school of conducting. And wow. that means not just learning to, to move a stick around, but how to read a score, how to be aware of the other instruments, how to learn what the flute does, what the trombone does, and then musical investigation. And so we had a 26-week course, which is all filmed and, and written about, because I, for each week I would write a often 20-page, uh, what we called a recap of the class. And then we took one piece in detail, the Symphony Number no. 4 of Gustav Mahler, Everybody had a conducting score, which we sent out to them. Several of them were very far away, in Texas and in other places. One, one young mem member was in Korea, uh, in Seoul, because she didn't come back to school. And so we had to send her score. She was doing that, uh, watching that class at 2.30 in the morning. And I said, Amy, you're, 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 the class is at 2.30. She said, I do not consider that a problem. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> we, we, sent, we sent her a score of Mahler 4, and uh, the, the postage alone was $40. I mean, she could have bought a score in Seoul, but it wouldn't have had my signature and my dedication to her, which I did for each one. And then they studied how to conduct Mahler. They studied the piece in great detail and the history and what was going on in Mahler's life and then also one whole session on how do you choose a soprano for the Mahler fourth and I made them listen to 15 different sopranos and that was fantastic. So that was last year. This wow. year, this year, the orchestra played a concert in Symphony Hall in November. What did we play? Mahler's fourth symphony. Now this was a whole different story because now you've got an orchestra, and this is a young orchestra, you understand, the youngest member is 12, the oldest is 21, so that's that span of youth, the complete youth from 12 to 21, consisting of conductors. And they all were listening 
as conductors, they all knew the music as conductors. Now, of course, not all of them, because there were many new ones who hadn't been there the year before. But there were enough of them for me to draw on their experience and their enthusiasm and their knowledge. And one of the music critics, a great critic in 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 Boston, said he heard something new when he heard that performance of Malafour that he'd never heard before, which is an orchestra of playing with such attention and such engagement with each other, bodily, physically, eyes, and also listening, that we hadn't achieved before. So that was an extraordinary outcome. And for me, I have to tell you, it made one of the most stimulating and engaging and instructive years of my life. And I've had many years of my life. So that was one of the uh, possibilities that came out of the catastrophe of COVID. I hardly left my house for, <laughs> for, two, for two years. Wow. But I, yeah. did, I did have an extraordinary year. Wow. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. And, and thank you. I commend you and thank you for your work with the youth orchestra. I am a product of the Toronto Symphony Youth Orchestra. I played it for five years, and so I'm the first to know yeah. how valuable that is. It for makes young an incredible, musicians. incredible impact. Me too. I played in the National Youth Orchestra of Great Britain, and I remember when I was 12 years old playing in that orchestra, the cello, and I remember the last page of. Cesar Frank D minor. The conductor was Walter Suskind. I don't know if you know that name. He was a great conductor, and he came to conductors. And on the last page of that symphony, I looked up in the concert, and he had tears streaming down his oh. face. And I remember saying to myself, whatever he's having, I want that. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Me too. Yeah. Right. That's amazing. Well, thank you so much for speaking with me, and, and it's been such an honor and a privilege to, to listen to you, and, and thanks to you, Andrea, for having me on the other side of the microphone to, to speak with Ben. And, well, and this is the, great. Uh, podcast. It's, it's a great joy, and you know, there was no despair in this conversation, and the, the thing about possibility is that despair is not an option. Grief might be if we lose a beloved uh, or the grief is appropriate, but despair is is not an option in this situation. Certainly not for the leaders. And I have one last thing to say to you, which is the lovely thing that Dostoevsky said. Apparently, he said, "With an intelligent person, even conversation is a pleasure." <laughs> ben, what a beautiful way to end this uh, interview. Uh, thank you for your time. I know how valuable it is. I know how busy you are and how much you've given the world with both your music and your talk. So from the bottom of my heart, thank you for sharing your wisdom and what you've learned throughout your illustrious career with our, our listeners. Uh, we will all be so much better off with that. So thank you, Ben. May I add one more thing to that thought, which is of course. You, we are having this conversation because of something that happened 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. right? So one of the things to realize about our conversation and what we've been talking about is that it does not go away. It stays with us, unlike, uh, you know, with the positive thinking or what you call it, to uh, motivational, right? In, motivational. Yes. Motivational lasts about two hours. You mm -hmm. know, it makes you feel good for two hours. But this doesn't go away. And you remembered it from 20 years ago and you made the contact with me out of nowhere, right? Just because yes. of that 20-year experience. And we could have another conversation 20 years from now. I mean, I probably <laughs> will be a little decrepit at that point since I'm... <laughs> In my now in my eighties, but that to me is the wonderful thing about this. It lasts forever. I agree, and I'll add one final point too, and and that is that I remember being so inspired by your book, and I wasn't necessarily someone who grew up surrounded by possibility. I my parents certainly instilled <clears throat> the belief that that whatever I wanted to do, I could do. But it was reading that book, Ben, that really opened my eyes to the art of the possible. And to a certain degree, 
uh, I've been living that for the last 20 years. And I think in the last year and a half, two years, I've reacquainted myself with that concept and have truly stepped two feet into the art of possibility. And it is remarkable and to a certain degree magical what happens when you truly believe. You truly believe something will happen and change will occur. And I've truly been blessed and surprised every step of the way what what is possible when you create an intention. I met a, a woman who was in her late 70s and she'd been in Auschwitz as a child. She went there when she was 15 and her brother was eight and the parents somewhere along the way from Germany to Poland uh, in the cattle train, you know, how they transported the Jewish ref, uh, people to the concentration camp. Somehow the parents got lost and so she was alone with her brother and she looked down and noticed that he'd lost one of his shoes. And she said, why are you so stupid? You're always losing things. Can't you keep your things together? Which was perfectly natural for a sister to say to her younger brother. But the problem was it was the last thing she ever said to him because she didn't see him again. He didn't survive. And when she came out of Auschwitz, and she, um, she told me this herself, she said, I walked out of Auschwitz into life and I made a vow. And the vow was, I will never say anything that couldn't stand as the last thing I ever say. And wow. that's a beautiful idea. We can't do it, but it is a possibility to live into. That may be the most powerful thing I've heard all year. Ben, thank you so much for your time. And I look forward to doing an interview with you in another 20 years. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we'll set a date. Bye-bye. <laughs> okay, thank you. Bye. This podcast was produced by Broadreach Communications. I'm Andrea Lekashoff, and thanks for listening. For show notes and additional resources, visit brpr.ca forward slash podcast.